Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the only place to hear cutting-edge climate tech founders pitch their businesses in real time and on a podcast. I'm Nick Van Osdal. Let's jump in. Yeah, I remember when I started here, I rang up someone who I'd known for a number of years who's a very influential policymaker in the electric vehicle space. And we were catching up and I told her I was working with a battery swapping company named Ample. And I think her response was, oh my gosh, battery swapping, they're doing that again. It was just, you know, the, the idea of battery swapping was met with a lot of disbelief and even disdain um, in the EV policy world. And I would say also in the industry in many ways, but the closer people get to having to implement large-scale electrification, the closer fleets get to having to actually install the infrastructure and deal with the logistics of EV charging, the more that they realize battery swapping is just a great solution for many, many, many use cases. All right, Levi, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. Absolutely. So to dive straight in, you know, and we can get into the background of this a little bit more afterwards, but you've held positions at a number of kind of the more esteemed, if not most esteemed, global policy and economic institutes or administrations over the years. So talk us through your journey a little bit and maybe enlighten us on what some of the biggest surprises along the way were too. Well, I think that two things really got me in to the electric vehicle space. The first was when I was younger, I had a startup that I founded with my brother and also my dad that was focused on internal combustion engines. It was called Iris Engines. And we had some really radical IP that it had some real theoretical gains in terms of thermal efficiency for internal combustion engines. And so I spent a lot of my time on that when I was in my early 20s. At the same time, I was pursuing a PhD at Johns Hopkins. And at the same time, I <laughs> was also working as a research assistant for someone named Daniel Jurgen. He wrote a book called The Prize, which won the Pulitzer Prize. And it was, it was about the oil and gas industry and about a century of the swashbuckling sort of corporate adventurers who traveled all around the world developing the modern oil and gas sector. It's really a fascinating read. So while I was working on those issues, electric vehicles came into my field of vision pretty early on. And I came to understand a couple of things. First of all, I realized that batteries in 2008 were totally not competitive with internal combustion engines. But I also realized that they were getting better and that the economies of scale and the innovation that was happening in the industry, but perhaps most importantly, the policy pressures that were being brought to bear on the automotive industry were going to dramatically improve the performance of batteries in the relatively near future. And the scale of that industry was going to grow enormously. And so uh, that's how I shifted my focus to battery electric vehicles. Um, I ended up writing my PhD dissertation on China and the United States and Japan and how they had tried to use industrial policy to promote innovation in the automotive sector. And I got hired up into the Obama administration 
as a result of the work that I was doing on that PhD dissertation. They actually hired me before I published my dissertation. So I was finishing it up while I was in the administration. And then sort of nights and weekends while I was working at the Department of Energy, I transformed that dissertation into a book that was more accessible to the general public. And, and that ended up getting published as a great race, the global quest for the car of the future. And, and since then, I've done a number of things in the space. I've done some consulting. I worked for the World Economic Forum, where I set up a program for them on decarbonizing the automotive uh, industry, starting with the manufacturing side of things, steel, aluminum, and batteries being the major contributors to embedded emissions, then the utilization phase and end of life with circular economy, how we can take those materials and reuse them. And that's how I came to Ample. I was working at the World Economic Forum. I'd known Khaled, our CEO, for a while, and he reached out and told me they were coming out of stealth and they needed a policy guy. And probably this was the only company in the world that could have taken me away from that job. I really enjoyed what we were doing at the World Economic Forum, but I felt like this particular set of technologies was very important to the future of electrification. Right on. Um, that was a great lead in and there's a lot in there that I'd love to unpack further. I think I'd start with, you know, for someone that's less familiar, both with what the policy itself looks like, some of what you must have been working on in the Obama admin and at the World Economic Forum and how that kind of comes to be. I guess my question would be, talk a little bit, if you would, about what actually formulating that policy looks like and kind of all the different steps that go into advancing something from, you know, when you're first starting to write down ideas to actually getting it out into the world. And then, well, I guess we can start with that and then we can dig into what it actually looks like. So if we're talking about policy and electric vehicles, I think the place to start really is California. Transformative policy during the early days of the industry. And, you know, I think California will continue to play an important role going forward. It really came out of California's Air Resource Board. They have some unique authorities given to them by the state, but also the Federal Clean Air Act that allows them to set emissions policies for the automotive industry and also allows other states to adopt California's emissions policies. And as part of those regulations, California started in the early 90s to create goals for the deployment of zero emission vehicles. And that was a very complicated process. It was very expensive for automakers to build electric vehicles in the early days of, of the zero emission vehicle mandates. But California basically said, if you want to sell cars in our market, you have to sell some electric cars in our market. And so there's a couple of decades of tug of war, lots of lawsuits, California holding the feet of the industry to the fire. But eventually, in the late 2000s, uh, we got to a point where electric vehicles really were practical for a lot of use cases and the costs had come down. And again, California was hugely important. I would say probably the driving factor in that transformation from electric vehicles being a science experiment to something that you could go into your friendly neighborhood auto dealer, uh, buy them, drive away and use for, you know, tens of years or hundreds of thousands of miles. Right on. And in the case of kind of how long that took in California, it certainly sounds like it was a super arduous journey. But what might someone like myself who's not as familiar with kind of formulating that policy underestimate in terms of difficulty? Because, you know, there's so much talk about we should be doing more on the 
public sector side to advance climate technologies? Like, what's a blind spot that I have as to why that stuff doesn't happen as fast as we might want it to? Well, I think there's a natural tension between industry and regulators. And part of the challenge is that as a regulator who's trying to accomplish something, um, in the case of California, it was first a focus on cleaning up the air here in the state, uh, but later the focus expanded to include climate change. You want to bend the industry, but you don't want to break it. And I think that that is something that is maybe not fully appreciated by people who are not in the thick of this process. The industry has an understandable antagonistic view of many of these regulations because they're expensive, they require a lot of resources, and they take a, a long time to realize some of these mandates. You know, it, it just it ends up being a huge compliance burden for them. That said, you need to have that healthy tension between regulation and the market if you're going to achieve socially beneficial ends in, in an industry like the automotive industry. If you don't have that regulation, first of all, things stagnate technologically. And secondly, companies end up focusing on things that you know, they might pad the bottom line, but they don't make the world a better place. So they wouldn't focus on safety. They wouldn't focus on fuel economy. They wouldn't focus on emissions. They would focus on better stereos. They would focus on bigger, cushier vehicles. Having regulation forces automakers to strike a balance and develop products that are more beneficial for society. Right. And, and what were you working on in terms of initiatives and policy at the World Economic Forum before you joined Ample? So one of the emerging issues in the automotive space is what I call embedded emissions, the emissions that it takes to manufacture a vehicle. And there was a lot of discussion about embedded emissions in the context of electric vehicles, because some people rightly said that batteries are very resource and carbon intensive to manufacture. And so there are lots of different efforts that have been undertaken to calculate the lifetime carbon savings attributable to an electric vehicle when you include those manufacturing emissions. The fact of the matter is that electric vehicles are much better from the standpoint of carbon emissions today. But in order to fully resolve that conflict between building a vehicle that has zero emissions during its use phase, but actually has a much bigger resource footprint during its manufacturing phase, what you need to do is create a circular economy. You need to decarbonize the manufacture of automobiles. You need to decarbonize the use phase of automobiles. And then you need to find a way to take those valuable resources, the again, the steel, the aluminum, and the batteries, which together account for about 80% of the carbon footprint of a vehicle, and pull them back in to the automotive ecosystem to create new vehicles at end of life. And so that's what we were working on. And we were working with national labs from a bunch of different countries. We were working with big automotive manufacturers with Renault and Daimler. Uh, we were working with steel and aluminum manufacturers. And there's a lot of interest in Europe now in figuring out how we can take what is currently a linear economy where we, you know, it's extractive, we mine things, we refine those things, we use those materials to build things, we use those things, and then we throw them away at the end of 
their life cycle into a circular economy, where maybe we mine things once, but after that, those materials have, for all intents and purposes, an infinite productive life. You know, that's a, a really valuable goal to be striving towards. Right. Yeah. And it's such an important kind of mental model or frame of reference, not just for electric vehicles, but for any engineered solution to a climate challenge or a climate problem. It's like you could be a carbon removal company, for instance, direct air capture, building intensive machines to execute that. But you still think about the emissions associated with the electricity to power it in the first place and with sourcing all of those materials to build the machines. Absolutely. And if you're interested in learning more about circular economy in the automotive industry, we put together three reports while I was at the World Economic Forum, one that was on business models, one that's on materials, and a third that is sort of a policy research agenda for the automotive circular economy. And I think they're all pretty interesting. They came out about two years ago, so they're not terribly dated. And just to tie it back to policy, what would some of the policy mechanisms look like to try and advance some of those more circular solutions? Is it as you kind of, the example that you gave with California, where it's, I don't know if quotas is the right word, but setting targets for companies? That's one way to do it. You know, it's all about incentives. And I think coming together on a compromised set of incentives that are not too onerous for the industry, but again, put enough pressure on the industry and give them the incentive to start moving towards these lower carbon, less resource intensive manufacturing use and recycling models is what it's all about. It's very complicated, honestly. <laughs> and I think first understanding what has to be done is, is important, but then figuring out how you can politically get to a place that will allow you to start imposing those costs on the industry. And the costs are real. They're not, you know, some people say this doesn't cost anything. It costs something. It always costs something. Eventually the costs go down, you reach scale, things get more efficient. And in the aggregate, you probably do save money because it's better for the planet. It's better for people's health. But industry doesn't like this stuff for a reason. It's hard to do and it costs money. And so getting to the political resolution of instituting those new policies and imposing those costs on the industry, that's a challenge. Yeah, even if there are long-term cost savings, whether it's a consumer or a massive company, initial switching costs can be a high hurdle to, to get over, that's for sure. Absolutely. That's a big challenge with renewable energy. Tying it back to Ample now a little bit, because you said you mentioned something interesting earlier, which is that Ample was kind of uniquely <laughs> positioned to be the one company in the world that could pull you away from the work that you were doing at the World Economic Forum. What about Ample was so compelling to you based on the work that you've done in the past, perhaps tying it, for instance, into this challenge that we have to, to decarbonize the production of electric vehicles and batteries? So when I came to Ample, I had already spent over a decade working on electric vehicles. And I was a big opponent of electric vehicles. I knew that there were some areas of the technology that were still a challenge, some areas of the overall business model that were uneconomical. But yeah, I said, look, let's push forward and figure out a way to deal with this. And, and eventually we will. I sort of have a, a faith in the intersection of market necessity and strong technology forcing policies to figure out solutions to these kinds of things. But the more I looked at the future of electrification and the speed at which we need to electrify the automotive industry, the more I realized that there was a big gap 
in the narrative. And that gap was around charging. And it wasn't just about building more public charging. Charging was just too slow. It was too expensive. There wasn't a business model supporting charging. And it, it was not a good thing for the electrical generation, transmission, and distribution system to add a bunch of high-powered chargers to it. And we need a lot of really high-powered chargers if we're going to replace gasoline-powered vehicles with electric vehicles. Today, probably half a percent of the vehicle miles traveled in the United States are electric. So we need 200 times that many miles on our roads within the next couple decades if we're going to address the issue of carbon emissions and transportation. So Ample was compelling to me because it filled that gap in the narrative. And, and the reason it could do that is because it provided a repowering solution that was as fast, as convenient, and as economical as gasoline. What Ample does is it provides an electric vehicle repowering system, and I say repowering system, not charging system, because we don't actually charge your electric vehicle, we swap batteries out. So we provide a repowering system that allows you to roll in to an Ample swapping station. Our Ample robots come, they pull out your empty or near empty batteries, and they replace them with a full battery. And the benefit of that is that it's much, much faster so the consumer doesn't have to wait around while their electric vehicle is charging. Um, but it's also much better from the perspective of the grid and in integrating renewables, because what we have is these big banks of batteries that are charging while consumers are out using their vehicles and going about their daily business. And that means that we can soak up renewable energy when it's available, then we can deliver it to vehicles really quickly when it's necessary. We can provide grid services. So if there's a lot of demand on the grid, we can actually feed energy back into the grid, um, or we can just curtail our charging if the system is peaking. And we also are less damaging to batteries than fast charging. So fast charging degrades batteries because what it does is it heats those batteries up and that breaks down the chemical structure of the battery. And that means that that very emissions and resource intensive piece of equipment doesn't last as long as it could. Battery swapping, because you're not urgently trying to charge the battery as fast as you possibly can, the batteries actually last a lot longer. So for all of those reasons, it's a really powerful addition to the EV ecosystem, and it's going to be a huge part of the future. Right. Yeah, that last point you made is particularly interesting to me. It's kind of this broader question of if you have something that's as resource intensive to produce as a battery, how do you get the maximum use out of that? And I think an interesting thing with EVs is like, as we expand their range, people are using less and less of that kind of battery capacity that's being put into each car. And as you said, you know, if you're constantly charging these every night, it's almost like your iPhone, which doesn't charge, doesn't hold a charge in the same way that it did when you first bought it after two years of charging it every night. So I think those are some of the more interesting applications of battery swapping is like, how do you maximize the rare earth materials, for instance, that are going to into each battery if you're already going to be extracting them out of the earth? Yeah, one of the benefits of battery swapping is you can actually dynamically change the capacity of a battery pack. So for instance, we exclusively service fleet vehicles right now. And there are a lot of fleet vehicles 
that only have a 40 mile daily route. And so they only need 50 or 60 miles of range. But if you're buying a battery powered vehicle that has a 250 mile range, because sometimes you might have to drive 250 miles, you're wasting the vast majority of that battery pack, the vast majority of the time. I have an electric vehicle, it has a 270 mile range. And I do use that range on occasion. I think I've used it four or five times in the lifetime of my vehicle. And I was glad that I had it. But the vast majority of time of the time, it just sits there unused. And so you have these really valuable, really resource intensive batteries that are sitting there as an expensive and carbon intensive insurance policy for one consumer. What battery swapping allows you to do is use those batteries much more intensively, but also maintain the health and viability of those batteries for a much longer period of time, or at least many more cycles, right? So so that's the important thing, how many cycles you're getting out of the battery. And we're maximizing the number of cycles that you can get out of that. Yeah, and the grid balancing that you mentioned, the grid balancing characteristics that battery swapping unlocks are attractive too. I mean, even if it's as simple as, you know, you don't have to charge the batteries at a specific time that may well for many consumers habits be coincided with kind of peak demand time on the grid, as well as, you know, there's opportunity to pair this type of stuff with renewable energy, as I think you hinted towards, and that can be an opportunity to reduce curtailment or what have you. Yeah, load shifting is really powerful. You can get most of the way towards where we need to do just by charging things when renewable electricity is available and then not charging things when (laughs) renewable electricity is not available or turning things off as the system is peaking. If you can't do that, then you need a huge amount of natural gas fired capacity in order to meet those peaks in electricity demand. And for all intents and purposes, that's what you're getting with high power EV chargers because nobody wants to roll up to your EV charger, plug it in, and then not be able to charge because the system is peaking and (laughs) that 350 kilowatts of energy demand would be too much and it would send it over the edge. Um, But with battery swapping, that's not a problem. We can turn off the charging, but we have charged batteries that are sitting in the swap station ready to be swapped. And so we can supply you with that energy much faster than a charger can, even during periods of peak system demand uh, without negatively impacting the grid. Right. Yeah. And, you know, to you and I, I think we both have pretty strong opinions and pretty well-formulated opinions about the role that we think battery swapping plays in electrification. It's definitely not to replace exclusively charging, but as an important kind of supplement to the way that EVs are going to work. But let's potentially take a contrarian view. What are some of the reasons that battery swapping hasn't taken off yet in the US? There's been a couple companies that I think of, or maybe just one big example that attempted it in the past, perhaps a decade ago. I forget the name of the firm now, but you know, what are some of the challenges that they've run into? Yeah, I think the ghost of Better Place looms large in the battery <laughs> swapping industry. Better Place had some structural issues, but I think the biggest problem with Better Place was that batteries were 10 times as expensive as they are today. And the electric vehicle industry was two orders of magnitude smaller than it is today. So there just weren't that many cars out there and batteries were wildly expensive. And that meant that it was really hard for a better place to succeed in that environment. 
there were some issues with management. They did have a very different capital structure than we do at Ample. One of the reasons that I joined Ample was because I was so impressed at how the founders had examined Better Place, uh, which had just recently failed, and systematically addressed the flaws in the Better Place business model. And you know, there, there are a few things that they did. The first is, rather than swapping one big battery, which had to be custom built for a specific model of vehicle, they broke that battery down into smaller pieces that you could stack like Legos into any electric vehicle. That's a big deal because it means that rather than having to build the entire industry around one specific battery design, automakers can design vehicles how they want to, and then they just stack these little modular batteries inside of the vehicle. So you get the benefits of swapping, but without the rigidity of that large form factor battery design. More modular. Exactly. And then the second thing that is different is that those small batteries mean we can build swapping facilities that are much, much smaller using robotics that are much, much lighter and less expensive than you have to use when you're swapping a thousand pound battery pack. So our, our modular battery packs are about 70 pounds. And that means that we don't have to do construction when we install a swapping station. Everything just sits on top of the blacktop or the concrete pad and the robots don't have to be anchored into the ground like you have to if you're swapping <laughs> a thousand pound battery pack um, because they're plenty strong to remove and manipulate a 70 pound modular battery. So it's a very different system. That said, the better place business model has taken off in China in a huge way. In China, they do have these large, expensive industrial grade facilities filled with massive robots that are swapping thousand pound batteries and Battery swapping is booming in China, and it, that is a sign of things to come in the United States and also in Europe. That's a you know that's an interesting place to spend a little bit of time is kind of where this is taking off as a preview of what the U.S. should probably be thinking about. So, how has China gotten to this place where they're building a lot more of that battery swapping infrastructure? Is a lot of that kind of state sponsored and policy driven? It started very much as a private sector-led initiatives. So you had a few companies that saw the potential in battery swapping. They got out in front of the industry. One of the leaders, they weren't the first company doing this in China. I saw battery swapping pilots in China in, I think, 2010. So they'd been looking at it for a long time. But one of the first companies that really invested in a slick commercial grade battery swapping system is NEO. And NEO continues to be, I think, the best known company in the battery swapping space. That said, every significant Chinese auto manufacturer is now pursuing battery swapping in some form or another. And I think what happened is that China built so much fast charging capacity, so much EV charging capacity that they realized that first of all, they weren't going to be able to build their way out of the constraints inherent to electric vehicle charging. China has more than 80% of the EV charging capacity in the world. In comparison, America has less than 5% of public EV charging capacity. And secondly, I think that they looked at the impact that those fast chargers were having on their grid 
or having on their ability to integrate renewables into their energy system. And they realized that they needed a better solution. And so China now has over 1,600 battery swap stations. And if you do some back of the envelope calculations, each one of those battery swap stations is probably equivalent to about 100 kilowatt DC fast chargers. So that is equivalent to more than 150,000 DC fast chargers worth of battery swap station capacity in China today. It is a massive, massive investment in the future of battery swap. And, and the reason that the Chinese are making that investment is because they're about half a decade ahead of the rest of the world in electric vehicle and electric vehicle infrastructure deployments. And they realize that this is the complement that they need to fulfill the promise of electric vehicles. Charging isn't going to get them there. Yeah, let that be a lesson to us as far as how the U.S. invests its money in building infrastructure for the for electrification. Hopefully we follow their lead. <laughs> Tell policymakers that every single day, and I just hope that they listen to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, back to kind of the challenges for Ample. We talked earlier a little bit about how kind of switching cost is such a big challenge for any any technology. And I imagine that, you know, it wasn't easy to get off the ground again to a place where people were hearing you talk about battery swapping and say like, okay, well, like, let's actually go out and, and do this in, in U.S. cities. So why don't we spend a little bit of time talking to, about kind of what your progress looks like and, and where Ample is today? Yeah, I remember when I started here, I rang up someone who I'd known for a number of years, who is a very influential policymaker in the electric vehicle space. And we were catching up and I told her I was working with battery swapping company named Ample. And I think her response was, oh my gosh, battery swapping, <laughs> they're doing that again. It was just, you know, the, the idea of battery swapping was met with a lot of disbelief and even disdain um, in the EV policy world. And I would say also in the industry in many ways, but the closer people get to having to implement large scale electrification, the closer fleets get to having to actually install the infrastructure and deal with the logistics of EV charging, the more that they realize battery swapping is just a great solution for many, many, many use cases. Currently, our main deployments of Ample-enabled swappable electric vehicles is in the Bay Area, and we have a sizable fleet of rideshare vehicles, mostly on the Uber and Lyft platforms that operate and I think get 100% of their energy from our ample battery swapping stations. Now, you can also plug in these vehicles to level one and level two chargers. But the reason that people are using ample electric vehicles is that they don't have access to an overnight charging point, or they need to recharge in the middle of the day. And recharging just takes too long. It is taking money out of their pockets every minute or every hour that they have to hang around while their electric vehicle charges. And, and, and public charging is also quite expensive. You know, you're talking about $6 a gallon equivalent when you're charging at most of the public charging points here in San Francisco. Yeah, that's a, it's kind of interesting to hear that it's as expensive as, as gas has gotten at some of those public charging stations. You would not think that. Uh... <laughs> but it was like that even when gas was $3 a gallon. And so that's one thing that people usually don't appreciate. If you can charge your electric vehicle at home during off-peak hours at night, then it's really very cheap 
to fuel an electric car. But if you're using public charging infrastructure, it's very expensive. Oftentimes, it's much more expensive than gasoline. Right. And what does the expansion plan for Ample look like? Which you know metropolitan areas are you are you looking to expand to next? And then I know that you're working with kind of fleets right now, which makes sense to me from a business model perspective. But is there a point where that would start transitioning to a phase where consumers would have access to this technology as well? So currently we're focused on California. Our next big deployment is going to be in Spain. And we have a number of fleet and automotive partners that we're working on that. I think it's going to start in Madrid. And then we have a number of cities that we'll expand to subsequently. The reason that we're starting with fleets is twofold. First of all, we don't make money when we build an ample station. That is not where our revenues come from. We make money when we sell electric miles. And that's actually a really good thing from an environmental perspective. Electric vehicle chargers are really expensive to build, but unfortunately, a lot of them are not very highly utilized. The business model still works for a lot of these charging companies because they make money when they build and install electric vehicle chargers. Uh, So I would argue that that is a set of incentives that is misaligned with the public good. We don't get anything out of a charger that sits there and doesn't actually charge electric vehicles. That's kind of a bridge to nowhere. And so the way that Ample has configured our own incentives, uh, we make money when people transition gasoline miles to electric miles. And the more electric miles they drive, the more money that we make. And so fleets use a, a lot more miles than your average private consumer does. And so for us, it makes a lot of sense to focus on fleets from that perspective. But there are two other reasons why we focus on fleets. The first is that we know where those cars are going to be, and we know about how many miles they're going to drive a day. And so it's much easier for us to plan for the utilization of our infrastructure when we're working with fleets that have relatively understood use case as opposed to private individuals where the use case can be a a little bit more random, a little bit more stochastic. You know, we don't, one day someone might drive halfway down the peninsula and one day they might drive 10 minutes to their mom's house and not go anywhere else, right? And so the use case changes a lot more with private consumers. So that's one reason. And then, you know, I think the second reason is that we want to make sure that we have a infrastructure base that can service people really comfortably when we open it up to private consumers. And we can use our fleet customers to establish that infrastructure base. And then once we have all the kinks worked out of the system, once we have good coverage, we can open things up to private consumers and provide a seamless experience for them. Yeah, I really like how you made that connection between Ample's business model being directly linked to reducing gas miles. That makes a ton of sense for the environment and and hopefully it works out well for you all too. (laughs) Yeah, that's one of the things that I've been pushing from a policy perspective. I think that there is a tendency for politicians to want to build things. They want to put concrete in the ground and have something that they can cut a ribbon on. But, you know, these bridges to nowhere, they don't actually do anything beneficial for the environment unless they're utilized. So we need to make sure that we're getting as many electric miles as possible out of every piece of EV recharging infrastructure or every swapping station, or for that matter, every electric vehicle. And I think 
configuring the incentives for the industry because the industry is still largely driven by policy so that we get maximal utilization of these currently somewhat scarce and quite expensive EV assets. That's really important. Yeah, and on that note, you know, the Biden admin has gotten more active of late on kind of advancing climate technologies, trying to, you know, solar panels comes to mind. They've done some more, or they've advanced some stuff related to heat pumps and other technologies as well. Are there things within that that have been relevant to your work at Ample or, you know, perhaps that you're just independently excited to see too? Yeah, I think the Biden administration is doing its best. They have some difficult coalition building that has to happen in order for them to take the big steps that, that really need to be taken in order for us to make the, the climate progress that we absolutely have to make in order to somewhat reduce the severity of the climate crisis that we face. There was this big infrastructure bill that was passed last fall, and there was some money for electric vehicle charging stations in that. But if you look at the scale of the investment that has to be made over the coming years, I would argue that the money that was put into that, they call it the IIJA, is not significant in the scheme of things. We need at least an order of magnitude more money being spent on electric vehicle infrastructure. And a lot of that money is going to have to come from the governments, unfortunately. Right. And and perhaps as kind of like a call to action, you know, what might I or someone who's listening to the podcast practically do to encourage the government to make those types of investments? Like what's the biggest lever of change that someone like myself can engage on? Gosh, that's a great question. I mean, I guess it's always useful to reach out to your local congressman, to reach out to your local senator, to send them a note and say, look, I want an electric vehicle, but I can't own one because I live in an apartment or I park on the street and it's just not convenient for me. It's not feasible for me to use the current public charging infrastructure. I think it's important for us to also realize that even when there's a lot more public charging infrastructure, which there needs to be, that the use case for public charging, it's not going to serve a huge proportion of the population that relies on vehicles today. And so I think just making that clear that we want to decarbonize, we want many more electric vehicles out there on the streets, but we need solutions that, again, are as fast, as convenient, and as economical as gasoline, and that there are solutions that are already deployed and or being developed in other countries, and that America needs to both adopt those solutions and compete with those other countries and have our own innovations that will serve our economy even better. I think sending those messages to your elected officials is really, really important. Right. Yeah, no, that definitely resonates. We spend so much time talking about investing in private markets and in climate technologies, but you know how we vote and whether we go above and beyond purely voting every election cycle is, is certainly important too. Yeah, I think the problem, you know, voting is obviously incredibly important, but once you're voting, usually the contest has already been narrowed down to a relatively small menu of candidates. And, and probably most of those candidates aren't expert on the issues that you really care about. And they're not necessarily invested in those issues or as thoughtful on those issues as you are. So I think sending some of your thoughts and your ideas and your expertise you know, directly to the office of your representative and telling them, look, there are 
good ideas and great technologies out there that can help us solve this climate crisis, that's really valuable. And, and they do listen when they get letters, when they get phone calls, they take note of that because they realize that at the end of the day, you add up those letters and you add up those phone calls and those are votes and those are their constituencies and that you know they need to be responsive to those constituencies at the end of the day. Yeah, that's interesting to hear. You know, I hadn't thought as much about even for my own purposes of doing that, but it's definitely something I'll try to do now because I'm writing about these things as is. It's not that much more of a lift to send it to them as well. <laughs> and the thing is, it is a lift. And so for every letter that they receive, they realize that there are probably a hundred or a thousand people out there who would kind of like to write that letter, but they just don't get around to it. And so they take these things very seriously. Right on. Thanks so much for joining the Keep Cool Show, Levi. It's been a pleasure. It was so much fun to chat with you. I enjoyed touring you through our facilities when you were here a few weeks ago, and you should definitely come back. We have a lot of really exciting technologies that we're going to be rolling out over the coming 12 months. Thanks for tuning in. And don't miss next week's episode by subscribing on Spotify, Google, Apple, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.